You're listening to the free ad-sponsored re-release of American Elections Wicked Game, a weekly march through every presidential election from 1789 to 2024. To listen to all episodes right now ad-free, go to intohistory.com. Subscribers there enjoy ad-free listening, early access, bonus content, and more from a growing collection of great history podcasts. Start your free trial today at intohistory.com. It's May 16, 1837, at a bank in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A friendly bank teller greets a customer at the counter. Welcome to the Bank of Pittsburgh. What can I do for you, sir? With a smile, the customer replies, I have uh, nearly $200 in specie, gold and silver. I'd like to make a deposit in exchange for paper notes. The teller hesitates for a moment. Concerned expression falls over his face. The customer asks, "Is, Is there something wrong, sir? No, sir, nothing wrong, only... The teller leans in confidentially and speaks in a whisper. In the spirit of fair dealing, I feel it my duty to warn you, this bank is is no longer paying out specie for notes. Are you aware of the change in our policy? The customer is fully aware. Banks all across the country have stopped paying out specie. It was only a matter of time before the problem came to Pennsylvania. But this particular customer isn't worried one bit. He's confident in the Bank of Pittsburgh. Yes, I am fully aware of the change in policy, sir. Then you must know it's not our choice. Just yesterday, the county courthouse passed a resolution requiring all banks in the city to stop paying out specie to customers. As I said, I am fully aware, but my desire is to deposit specie in exchange for notes, not the other way around. Yes, I I understand, only you will not be able to get the specie back under the current law. I would be remiss if I did not warn you of this. I appreciate your honesty, sir, but the fact remains... I have $200 worth of specie right here in my bag. The customer sets his bag on the counter with a thud. And I have confidence in the Bank of Pittsburgh. Does the bank want my business or not? Well, well, yes, of course, sir. Well, then thank you. I'll, I'll draw up the paperwork right away. On May 16, 1837, a version of this story appeared in the Pittsburgh Gazette. Though the story was presented as real journalism, It was most likely fake news, a planted story to show the people of Pittsburgh that the Bank of Pittsburgh was doing just fine. But the Gazette story concealed a darker truth. In 1837, the Bank of Pittsburgh, like many banks across the country, was teetering on the verge of crisis. The Panic of 1837, as it would come to be called, would devastate the American economy and cause the people to lose faith in their leader, President Martin Van Buren. Wicked Game is sponsored by NetSuite. There's that saying, that's just the cost of doing business, and it makes it sound like there's nothing you can do about certain expenses. And yeah, sure, if you run a business, there are certain things that are just going to cost what they cost, and recently they've probably begun costing more. But not everything is just the cost of doing business. Smart companies know their numbers and can reduce their costs. One great way of doing both is switching to NetSuite, the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. And with NetSuite, you'll reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. 
You'll cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite this year. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com elections. That's netsuite.com slash elections, netsuite.com slash elections. Wicked Game is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Think about that phrase. Visualize it. The metaphor is that something is literally on your chest, weighing you down, pressing down upon you, that when you lay in bed at night, there's a heavy burden bearing down on you. And everyone has these weights, deep concerns, feelings of guilt, anger, or misery we try to keep to ourselves. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. And if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. No waiting rooms, no traffic. It couldn't be simpler. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash elections today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash elections. From Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is American Elections Wicked Game. The Panic of 1837 was caused by a myriad of factors, including British banking policies that traveled across the pond. But the Whig Party laid the blame at the feet of Andrew Jackson in his bank war. Jackson had vetoed the recharter of the Second Bank of the United States, favoring decentralized state banks, or Jackson's pet banks, as his enemies called them. Jackson's decision to ultimately withdraw federal deposits from the Second Bank forced the bank to call in its notes. The result was catastrophic to the economy, shrinking credit, a dwindling money supply, and a wave of bankruptcies and unemployment. The Panic of 1837 and the ensuing economic depression plagued Martin Van Buren's first term. In keeping with the presidential standards of the day, Van Buren was reluctant to use federal funds to save the economy. The decision cost him his popularity and earned him the nickname Martin Van Ruin. For perhaps the first time in U.S. history, the American people directly blamed a sitting president for financial woes. In the prior elections of 1828 and 1832, Democrats elected Andrew Jackson by defining him as a war hero and a true champion of the common man. In 1836, Martin Van Buren was elected on the strength of Jackson's legacy. But in the election of 1840, the opposition Whigs would take a page out of the Democratic playbook and run a war hero candidate of their own to unseat Van Buren. General William Henry Harrison, the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe. This is episode 14, 1840, Old Tip. It's January 1840 at a mansion on the Susquehanna River in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The banks of the river are covered in snow, the water nearly frozen over. 
Richard Smith Elliott, a young newspaper man, knocks on the large wooden door to the mansion. Thomas Elder, Harrisburg banker and the former attorney general of Pennsylvania, answers the door. Mr. Elliott, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me, Mr. Elder. Come in, where it's warm. Elder leads Elliot through a maze of rooms and hallways back to his private office. May I offer you a drink? Oh, yes, please. Have a seat by the fire. Warm your hands. Elder pours two glasses of wine and joins his guest. He gets down to the business at hand. I assume you've seen this. Elder hands Elliot a copy of a newspaper from a few weeks back, the December 11th edition of the Baltimore Republican, an anti-Whig newspaper. The article attacked the Whigs' presumptive presidential candidate, General William Henry Harrison. The Republican painted Harrison as old, weak, feeble, and financially desperate. Elliot takes the paper in his hands and reads the words. Give Harrison a barrel of hard cider and settle a pension of 2000 a year on him and take my word for it, he will sit the remainder of his days in his log cabin. Yes, the attacks in the press have been unrelenting, Mr. Elliot. The New York Herald called him an old woman. I know. And the New York Evening Post called him a pauper. They're trying to tear down our war hero, Mr. Elliot. No, 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 they're not trying. They're succeeding. Perhaps, Mr. Elliot, instead of refuting these insults, we should own them. And, and what exactly are you suggesting? Elder leans in close with a gleam in his eye. I'm suggesting we build one. Elliot's face falls into confusion. A log cabin? Yes. Most of the voters today, their parents and grandparents lived in log cabins. This article is an insult to them. Let us paint the Democrats as the party of the elite and Harrison the candidate of the common man. Well, it, it worked for Andrew Jackson. Perhaps we could use their strategy against them. Indeed. Let us bring the campaign down to the people. Let us stoop to conquer. In January of 1840, Richard Elliott and Thomas Elder created what might be called the first campaign logo in American history. In their meeting, Elder drew a rough sketch of a log cabin, complete with chimney stacks, a pile of wood, and a raccoon skin hanging from the facade. The following day, Elliott hired an artist to work up a final version. And at a meeting of Pennsylvania Whigs in Harrisburg on January 20th, Elliott presented the image with the accompanying slogan, Democracy, Reform, and One Presidential Term. In response to the image, the crowd of Whigs erupted into what one newspaper called the huzzas of the multitude. The image caught on like wildfire, spreading to every corner of the country. And within a matter of weeks, William Henry Harrison, the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe, had a new identity, the hero of the common man. A few weeks after Elder and Elliot's meeting, one Harrison-friendly newspaper wrote, The people are of the opinion that General Harrison has lived in a log cabin long enough, and they intend on the 4th of March, 1841, to give him free rent of the Great White House in Washington City. In late February 1840, the Whig National Convention was held in Columbus, Ohio. The heavy rain and bad weather didn't stop thousands of Ohioans from flocking to Columbus. A massive banner hung over the main street, Harrison and Tyler, the pillars of reform. John Tyler was a former senator from Virginia, Harrison's presumptive vice presidential nominee. Tyler had been a Democrat until he broke with his party over Andrew Jackson's bank war. He was meant to give the ticket geographical balance and to entice Jackson defectors in the South to vote Whig in 1840. Throngs of people lined the muddy streets of Columbus. The county militia led a procession as bands blared their brass at full volume. Behind the militia was a giant canoe pulled by a herd of horses. 
At the front of the canoe, a massive tree with a gigantic portrait of Harrison hanging from its limbs. Behind it, an even bigger canoe, 70 feet long and packed with countless supporters. The parade was an impressive sight. Floats with fake steamboats, replicas of military forts and large wooden cabins, all on wheels and pulled by white horses. The parade led to a makeshift stage where some 30,000 people gathered as Whig delegates took to the podium to declare their support for William Henry Harrison and John Tyler. At the closing of the convention, the massive crowd joined in a chant, Huzzah, huzzah, Harrison and reform. The convention was unlike anything the country had ever seen. Journalists who covered the event were literally at a loss of words. One pro-Harrison reporter wrote that he had seen the event unfold but that word simply could not describe it. The convention galvanized the Whigs around Harrison's candidacy. Shortly after, one supporter returned home and put his passionate feelings into song, writing the lyrics to what would become the first campaign slogan in American history. What has caused the great commotion? Motion, motion, our country through. It is the ball a-rollin' on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. The Harrison campaign also made use of alcohol as a way of ginning up support. One Philadelphia liquor man allegedly sold bottles in the shape of log cabins. According to legend, it was the election of 1840 that gave rise to the colloquial term for liquor that is still used today, a term derived from the last name of that Philadelphia distiller, Edmund Booze. But the anti-Whig paper The Ohio Statesman was less enthusiastic. In late February 1840, the Statesman wrote disparagingly of the Whig convention, Songs and drinking and carousing and appeals to men's worst passions are introduced into the political meeting instead of argument and appeals to their senses. The carefully crafted image of Harrison as a regular Joe who drank hard cider and lived in the log cabin was a lie. Harrison was not a common man, and neither was Tyler. Both had been born into wealthy plantation families in Virginia. So in the spring of 1840, Democrats sought to tear down Harrison's false image and show the American people who they believed he truly was, a tool of the elite and a fraud. On February 14, 1840, in a House debate, Michigan Representative Isaac Crary took Harrison's candidacy to task by attacking one of its strongest attributes, his war record. Crary leveled a serious charge. Harrison's victory at the Battle of Tippecanoe was hardly a victory at all. Crary declared, Anyone who will put himself to the trouble of reading the official account of the Battle of Tippecanoe will see that General Harrison performed no great act of generalship on that occasion. Crary asserted that due to Harrison's ineptitude, American troops had suffered massive casualties. Harrison's bravery was also called into question. Harrison, Democrats claimed, had been afraid of being targeted by Indian fighters during the Battle of Tippecanoe. So in the heat of the moment, in an act of cowardice, he had forced another officer to ride his horse that officer had died in Harrison's place. The story was a lie, but it didn't stop the Democrats from telling it. Crary also attacked Harrison's conduct in another military engagement, the Battle of the Thames. According to Crary, the real hero of Thames was Martin Van Buren's vice president, Richard Mentor Johnson, or Old Dick as he was known. Crary alleged that while Harrison was hiding in the woods, Johnson had done all the work. In the House debate, Whigs rallied to Harrison's defense. One congressman read a statement from one of Harrison's former men. I know, sir, that cannonballs and bombshells flew thick around him in these battles. Horses were shot down under him. I speak what my eyes have seen. General Harrison is not a coward. 
The day after Crary's attack, an Ohio Whig, Representative Tom Corwin, fought back. Corwin attacked Crary's military record. Crary had served as a brigadier general in peacetime. According to Corwin, Crary's most dangerous mission had been marching in a parade. The House gallery was packed with spectators and senators who bellowed with laughter as Corwin cut Crary down to size. The next day, John Quincy Adams pronounced Crary's political career dead by referring to him as the late General Crary. Perhaps the Whigs had succeeded in defending Harrison's war record, if not the dubious claims about his humble beginnings. And in early May of 1840, thousands of Whigs gathered in Baltimore's Monument Square for a political rally. It was a rowdy affair with parades, songs, log cabins, and cider. One float in the massive parade displayed a clever poem. Farewell, dear Van, you're not our man. To guide the ship, we'll try old tip. On Tuesday, May 6th, while the Whigs met in Baltimore's Monument Square, the Democrats held their own convention in Baltimore's Music Hall. The meeting struck an altogether different tone from the Whigs. Keynote speaker, Tennessee Senator Felix Grundy, led off by saying, We wish no deceptive parade of log cabins and empty cider barrels. We desire to address ourselves to the intelligence of the people. President Van Buren did not attend. His son, who attended on his behalf, was alarmed by the tone of the convention. The sounds of the rowdy Whigs could be heard inside the music hall. The Democrats, by contrast, were sober and restrained. Van Buren's son would state that the delegates seemed to lack a universal sense of the necessity of action and organization. But if Democrats lacked urgency, they still accomplished quite a bit. On Wednesday, May 7th, 248 Democratic delegates from 21 different states rolled up their sleeves and went to work drafting a nine-point political platform, the first official policy platform in American political history. Its thesis was this. The powers of the federal government are limited. The rights of the states should reign supreme. Throughout the convention, party leaders condemned the Whig strategy of stooping to conquer. Democrats felt the Whigs were playing an insidious game, pretending to be something they were clearly not in order to whip up support with the masses. Harrison was not a man of the people, and the Whigs were not the people's party. They were wealthy bankers, not log cabin men. The Democrats were the true party of states' rights, and Martin Van Buren, like Andrew Jackson before him, was the true champion of the people. By unanimous voice vote, the convention named Martin Van Buren the Democratic nominee for the 1840 election. The question of the vice presidency, though, was an entirely different matter. For many, sticking with old Dick Johnson was the path of least resistance. He was a war hero, too, a direct answer to old Tippecanoe. But for many other party members, especially in the South, Colonel Johnson was a non-starter. In the election of 1836, he had been narrowly nominated as Van Buren's running mate in the face of staunch opposition. In the general election, after he failed to receive a majority of votes for the vice presidency, the Senate had to intervene and named him vice president in a contingent election. Johnson was controversial because he had a skeleton in his closet. He had fathered two children with a mulatto woman named Julia, a slave he had inherited from his father. In response to the scandal, the southern bloc of the Democratic Party revolted against Johnson and refused to renominate him at the Baltimore Convention. In an unprecedented turn of events, the Democrats did not nominate a vice presidential candidate at all. Since the advent of the National Nominating Convention, it was the first and only time in American history that a political party did not choose a vice presidential running mate. Seeing a weakness, 
the Whigs lampooned the Democratic convention with a biting song. Pretty little Martin, tiptoe fine, couldn't get a candidate for vice president to please his mind. Riding the anti-Van Buren wave generated by the Democratic convention, the Whigs took their strategy to the next level. In the 1840 contest, in a stark break from precedent, Harrison himself would campaign on the road. He would deliver over 20 speeches in Ohio alone and countless more in counties, cities, and states all across the country. Harrison was being portrayed as a man of the people, so got out among the masses to prove it. Icebergs, jagged rocks and rocky straits, mutinies, misfortune, and broadside battles. There are more tales of the sea than survivors to tell them, but the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is doing a good job, and you can listen to all episodes of that podcast plus many others, including American Elections Wicked Game, without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs is one of my favorites from last year, a podcast about the greatest mishaps, misfortune, and misadventures of the sea. You'll hear stories of corruption, greed, bad intentions, and just plain horrible decision-making that resulted in some of the worst maritime disasters from all over the world. And some of these are more recent than you think. All episodes are ad-free, including bonus content and more, at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Just before Halloween in 1985, a pipe bomb exploded in an office building in downtown Salt Lake City, killing a man and leaving the entire city on edge. As the smoke cleared and investigators began the search for answers, it became terrifyingly clear that this was just the beginning. Suddenly, looking for the culprit became a race against time. Hi, I'm Jeremy Schwartz, host of the new true crime history podcast, American Criminal. We take you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side to the American dream. In our latest season, the desperate hunt for a killer leads the authorities through the complicated world of historic document collectors, and eventually right to the door of the Mormon church. Listen to American Criminal, The Salt Lake City Bombings, wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com. It's June 11th, 1840, at Fort Miggs in Perrysburg, Ohio. In front of a crowd of over 30,000, General William Henry Harrison stands center stage. Harrison and his campaign advisors chose Fort Miggs for a reason. Harrison had erected the fort during the War of 1812 and heroically defended it against an onslaught of British and Indian attacks. Harrison bellows to the crowd, Boy, I sure could use something to wet my whistle. One of Harrison's campaigners hands him a large jug of hard cider. The crowd roars with delight as Harrison takes a swig. Harrison chuckles in response and holds up the jug. That sure hit the spot. Just then, someone in the crowd catches Harrison's eye, an old man in a military uniform. Harrison calls out, You there. Stunned, the old man's mouth falls wide open. I know you, General. You have stood by my side in the hour of battle. I cannot bear to see you at so great a distance now. As the old man cowers in embarrassment, Harrison calls out, Don't be shy now. Come on up and join me so the crowd can get a good look at you. 
As the old man makes his way to the stage, the crowd erupts in applause. Tell the people your name and rank, sir. The old man calls out, General James Hedges. General Hedges, you've been a friend to me and to this country. Thank you for your service and your support. Harrison turns to the crowd. Let's hear it for General Hedges, hero of 1812. At Fort Meigs, General William Henry Harrison delivered the first campaign speech by a candidate in American history. He spoke to the crowd for over two hours. He recounted his service in the war and attacked the Democratic Party. Mocking their insatiable hunger for power, making a nearly ribald metaphor, Harrison said, If the ladies whom I see around me were near enough to hear me and of sufficient age to give an experimental answer, they would tell you that no lover is ever satisfied with the first smile of his mistress. Harrison was suggesting that the Democrats would want more of their mistress, power, and painted Van Buren as a tyrant, a dishonest man who would never abide by the laws of the Constitution. But at Fort Meigs, Harrison was the one bending the truth. The old man in the crowd, General Hedges, was a plant. The jug of cider, too, was placed in the crowd by the Harrison campaign. It was all staged political theater. Though Harrison had not chosen his carefully crafted image, on the first political campaign tour in American history, he happily played his part. Unlike the Democrats, the Whigs did not adopt a party platform in 1840. In fact, they went to great lengths to avoid controversial issues like slavery and the banks. Instead, Whigs leaned into the log cabin image and focused on appealing to the hearts of the masses. Whigs launched a series of partisan newspapers, including a New York publication titled The Log Cabin. As Harrison traveled the country making speeches and ginning up support, Whigs handed out cider, launched parades, and built log cabins to serve as Harrison campaign headquarters. The Whigs also used their partisan papers and campaign machinery to cast Harrison as the hero of the common man and Van Buren as an elite aristocrat out of touch with the people. But in September of 1840, the Democrats fought back in the press. A pro-Democrat paper, The Extra Globe, ran an article with a curious headline, Where Does the Money Come From? The Extra Globe charged that the Whigs were buying influence to change the outcome of the election. There were no laws related to campaign finance in 1840, and the notion of money influencing politics was very new. Still, the Democrats demanded answers. The Extra Globe wrote, the log cabins would not have been erected, the carousels and drunken revels would cease, the tippecanoe songs would lose their music if there was no money raised to pay for them. For Democrats, this dark money, to use a modern term, was further proof that Harrison was not the party of the common man. He was a tool of the wealthy elite. And indeed, in the 1840 contest, money flowed into the Harrison campaign in unprecedented ways. Merchants and business people in the Northeast gave Harrison's campaign thousands of dollars. One New York businessman all but paid for the log cabin newspaper in New York. Another business owner in Massachusetts gave the Harrison campaign $5,000, over $100,000 in today's money. But perhaps the most generous giver was Nicholas Biddle, the last president of the Second Bank of the United States. In late September 1840, 40,000 New York Whigs, merchants, business professionals, and traders gathered at the corner of Wall Street and William Street for a massive political rally. Their main concern was a plan that had been passed by the Democratic-controlled Congress in July of 1840. The plan, pushed by Van Buren, called for an independent national treasury, a threat to Biddle's second bank, 
and to the current financial system. Whig leaders addressed the crowd and attacked Van Buren's inaction in response to the Panic of 1837. In wake of the panic, Van Buren had been reluctant to get the federal government involved. He believed the federal government did not have constitutional authority to do so. The Whigs disagreed. At the September rally, the Whigs called for federal intervention, defending the government's right to regulate the money supply. One speaker was Massachusetts Senator Daniel Webster, a prominent Whig who, like Harrison, had made a strong showing in the election of 1836. Webster spoke for nearly three hours. He demanded a just, stable financial system made up of paper money, specie, and credit. Webster bellowed to the crowd, What we need is currency which shall be equally acceptable in the Gulf of Mexico, in the Valley of the Mississippi, on the Canada frontier, on the Atlantic Ocean, and in every town, village, and hamlet of our extended land. At the same time, less than a block away, New York Democrats held their political rally. The turnout was less impressive, but their message was big and bold. The rich and powerful Whigs were mixing money with politics. They were trying to buy the presidential election, and they were using government resources to do it. Just weeks before their rally in New York, the pro-Democrat Extra Globe had attacked the Whigs for abusing the postal system, writing, The quantity of trash which has passed through the post office here under the frank of members of Congress is truly incredible. The Extra Globe claimed that in the summer of 1840, over 200 bushels of mail a day poured out of Washington. They went on, eight-tenths of this mass of trash, with which the mails have grown during nearly eight months, has proceeded from the Whig members of Congress. Law allowed congressmen to send information to their constituents free of charge. The Whigs took full advantage of this, sending countless pro-Harrison letters and pamphlets from their campaign headquarters in Washington City Hall. Whether it was corrupt or not, the Harrison campaign was organized. While the Whig congressmen launched their mailing campaign from Washington, the party created a hierarchy of committees and subcommittees in nearly every state, county, city, and district across the country. The Whigs created what was arguably the first voter database, a comprehensive list of every eligible voter in every district. The machine was so finely tuned that a newspaper article in September of 1840, one Democratic congressman commented, that the Whigs were planning to bring to the polls every man they can induce, by argument or money, blandishments or threats, liquor or lies, to vote the Whig ticket. In October of 1840, the Extra Globe doubled down with an article titled The Government for Sale. The Extra Globe leveled serious charges of corruption at the Whigs, Money, the article explained, had paid for the cabins, the parades, the conventions, the rallies, and most importantly, the people. The erection of log cabins, like the barracks of an army, were to afford quarters for the vicious and depraved, debauched with liquor and stimulated with lying, and corrupted with money. With this corruption fund, hundreds of agents have been employed and paid large sums to traverse the country to distribute pamphlets and speeches filled with the most scandalous falsehoods. According to the Democrats, the Whigs were doling out millions of dollars, and they weren't doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. As the Extra Globe explained, it is the hope of making more money that induces the gambling merchants and capitalists to bleed so freely to supply this corruption fund. They consider it a profitable investment. But the truth is, both parties were guilty of using money and the government to influence the outcome of the election. Historian Ronald Schaefer points out in his book, The Carnival Campaign, that Van Buren had plenty of federal help, too. 
According to Schaefer, the Pro Van Buren Washington Globe newspaper had an annual government contract worth $60,000 a year, the equivalent of nearly $1.4 million in today's money. And the improper use of campaign money wasn't the only dirty trick utilized by both political parties in 1840. As the Extra Globe wrote in October of that year, it is by the agency of money that they charter steamboats and pay the expenses of transporting the vagabonds from state to state to give fraudulent and illegal votes. It was in the election of 1840, for perhaps the first time in American history, that voter fraud and voter suppression became a central issue in the political campaign. Both parties played a part, and both sides accused the other of being the worst offender. On election day in Illinois, when a Democratic operative stood at the polls to intimidate Whig voters, one presidential elector, a rising political star, took matters into his own hands. Disgusted with the dirty tricks, Abraham Lincoln rolled up his sleeves and literally ran to the polls to fight back. If you're a careful Wicked Game listener, you know in the credits I mentioned my friend Professor Greg Jackson and his podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. It's a great show. But one way it can doesn't suck even more is when you listen to it without ads. You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game, all episodes of History That Doesn't Suck, and all episodes of many more great history podcasts without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. History That Doesn't Suck is a deeply researched chronological survey of American history from a trained academic who also knows how to tell a story. Plus, in addition to ad-free listening to one of the best American history podcasts out there, you get scores of bonus episodes at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. Did you know you can skip ads and promos like these and listen to all episodes of American Elections Wicked Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com? And not only will you be getting the whole series ad-free and bingeable, but you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free, like Wild West Extravaganza, a journey back to the fascinating, tumultuous, and often violent world of the American Old West. From famous outlaws like Billy the Kid and Jesse James, to lawmen like Wyatt Earp and Wild Bill Hickok, to trailblazing pioneers and frontiersmen, Wild West Extravaganza tells the true stories of the real-life characters who shaped this iconic era. So saddle up and discover the true history of the American frontier, the good, the bad, and the ugly, ad-free at IntoHistory.com. It's Election Day, 1840, in Springfield, Illinois. The polls are packed with voters, the streets littered with citizens turning out to vote in Harrison County. Illinois presidential elector Abraham Lincoln sprints through the crowded streets. He's just heard a troubling rumor. A contractor named Mr. Radford, a Democratic operative, has taken possession of a polling center in town. As Lincoln rounds the corner in full sprint, he sees Radford whispering into the ear of a voter who stands in line. Radford looks menacing, and the voter looks afraid. From across the way, Lincoln calls out, Mr. Radford? Mr. Lincoln? May I have a word, sir? Certainly. Lincoln and Radford meet face-to-face in the street outside the polling center. Unlike Lincoln, Radford isn't alone. Flanking his rear is a small gang of poll bullies, muscle men who've come to the poll for one reason, to intimidate Whig voters. With a smile, Radford asks, Have you come to cast a vote for yourself, Mr. Lincoln? I've come to protect the integrity of this election. Is that a fact? I'd like you and your friends to leave this place without delay. 
It's a free country, Mr. Lincoln. Perhaps you've forgotten that. Yes, a free country with free elections. Perhaps you've forgotten. I will ask you one more time. Will you and your men retire from this place? And why should we? You Whigs are as corrupt as any man in Christendom. Lincoln takes a confrontational step towards Radford. The two men are face to face, inches apart. This is Illinois, Radford. If you continue running off at the mouth, you'll spoil and blow if you live much longer. Radford sizes up Lincoln. He can tell from the look on Lincoln's face and his firmly clenched fists that he is fully prepared to go to blows. After a tense moment, Radford stands down, pats Lincoln on the shoulder, and turns back to his men. Come on, boys. I believe we've done enough good for one day. Best of luck, Mr. Lincoln. After Radford and the bullies left the polls, Lincoln was disappointed. He had been hoping for a fight. As he later told a friend, he wanted to provoke Radford, knock him down, and leave him kicking. Violence was narrowly avoided, but the integrity of the polling center was preserved, thanks to the future American president bearing the nickname Honest Abe. But the dirty tricks weren't contained to a single polling center in Springfield, Illinois, and Honest Abe was a mere presidential elector, not yet a man of national consequence. Despite Lincoln's best efforts on the local level, voter fraud and suppression were rampant all across the country, and both political parties were to blame. In the 1840 election, Democrats and Whigs publicly decried dubious electioneering tactics like ballot stuffing, illegal voters, and ballot theft. The hangring was more than a little hypocritical, considering both parties were guilty of the exact same dirty tricks. Both parties used pre-printed ballots, both parties stuffed ballot boxes, and both parties dispatched poll bullies to scare away the opposition. And nowhere was the chicanery more present than in Martin Van Buren's home state of New York. In the fall of 1840, the pro-Democrat paper The Rough Hewer in Albany, New York, wrote, We understand that a Whig committee has been sent prowling around our city, inquiring the politics of every working man with the intention of throwing every Democrat out of employment. And in early October of 1840, the Extra Globe urged his readers, Wherever the Whig officers have control of the ballot box, let them be watched day and night with unceasing vigilance. In late October, the same paper reported that the Whigs were engaged in rampant voter fraud in Harrison-friendly Tippecanoe County in Indiana. According to the Extra Globe, Whigs had placed votes for large masses of names not known as citizens of the county. The same day, the Extra Globe warned readers of the most deliberate and astounding fraud that has ever come to light in this country. The story accused Whigs of dispatching gangs of bullies to multiple states, including New York, in order to vote illegally at multiple polls and wreak havoc along the way. The Whigs made similar accusations. Not long after the Extra Globe story, the pro-Whig Harrisburg Chronicle in Pennsylvania reported that a local Whig newspaper man was attacked by a gang of poll bullies who knocked him down, jumped upon him, and cut his face in the most horrible manner. The flesh was cut nearly off both sides of his face, and his left cheek and jawbones nearly bare. But while the partisan war was being waged in the press, presidential incumbent Martin Van Buren was lying in wait. The little magician, as he was often called, had a surprise in store. In October 1840, Democratic prosecutors in New York announced a string of indictments against powerful Whig politicians. The Democrat prosecutors accused these Whigs, many of whom were principals in the Harrison campaign, of election fraud in the 1838 midterms. 
In response to the scandal, the pro-Van Buren Albany rough hewer wrote the headline, Sound the alarm, your liberties are in danger. The charges centered around efforts made by New York Whigs to put William H. Seward, Abraham Lincoln's future Secretary of State, in the New York governor's mansion. At the heart of the scandal was a contractor named James B. Glentworth. Whigs in New York had paid Glentworth thousands of dollars to lay water pipes, but Glentworth and his crew also provided another valuable service, votes. Glentworth denied the accusation that he had sent his crew to illegally vote in New York in exchange for city contracts. The evidence was significant enough that Governor Seward fired Glentworth to save face, but not significant enough to prove the charges. The indictment went nowhere. Van Buren knew these indictments were coming long before the election of 1840. But if he was hoping for what modern politicos call an October surprise, the Glentworth scandal in New York did not have the desired effect. So he returned to traditional campaigning. But unlike William Henry Harrison, Martin Van Buren abided by precedent and did not campaign openly. He worked behind the scenes and largely left his re-election efforts in the hands of his supporters and advocates in Washington and across the country. In the end, it would cost him. The election of 1840 saw unprecedented voter turnout. More than 80% of eligible voters, over 2 million people, turned out to vote from October 30th to December 2nd, 1840. In the end, despite the best efforts of Van Buren supporters, the American people voted their pocketbooks. The depression resulting from the Panic of 1837 hurt Van Buren more than anything else, perhaps even more than the Whigs' crafty political campaign. Harrison won 17 states, Van Buren only seven. Van Buren had done well in the South, especially in Virginia, but he had underperformed in the North. He even lost his home state of New York. Harrison's electoral college victory was a landslide. He won 234 votes to Van Buren's 60, but the popular vote told a different story. Out of roughly 2.4 million votes cast, Harrison won by a margin of only 150,000. Still, the Whigs swept the election, capturing control of both the House and the Senate. The Whigs dominated, primarily by beating the Democrats at their own game, a game they had played so well in promoting President Andrew Jackson. As the pro-Van Buren paper, the Democratic Review, noted after the election, we have taught them how to conquer us. But where Andrew Jackson served for eight years in the White House, the tenure of William Henry Harrison would be brief. He was inaugurated on March 4, 1841. In the frigid winter, Harrison took the oath of office in front of the East Portico. He didn't wear a coat to shield him from the punishing cold. He talked for over two hours, the longest inaugural address in American history. And not long after, he fell ill with pneumonia. Many of Harrison's contemporaries, and indeed many historians, attributed his illness to the speech, but the culprit was more likely tainted water from Washington's primitive sewage system. Regardless of the cause, on April 4, 1841, President William Henry Harrison, America's ninth president, succumbed to his illness and passed away. He had been in office for exactly one month, the shortest presidency in American history. Two days later, Vice President Tyler took the oath of office, making him the first vice president in U.S. history to succeed the president. Tyler had been added to the Harrison ticket to provide geographical balance and shore up support in the South. But in the most basic sense, Tyler was not a Whig. Whigs united around the principle that Congress, not the president, should hold the reins of power in American government. Like most Virginians, John Tyler was suspicious of federal power. At his core, he was a states' rights man. 
For Tyler, the individual states should decide their own political destiny, not the president and not Congress. President Tyler would fight members of his own party in Congress over controversial issues like federal improvements and the Second Bank of the United States. He would become so estranged from the Whigs that they would abandon him in the election of 1844, choosing instead to run one of the Whigs' most reliable and popular names, Kentucky Senator Henry Clay. Though Van Buren's loss in 1840 had signaled that the age of Jackson was nearly over, in 1844, Old Hickory's legacy would be on the ballot one last time. Martin Van Buren would again seek his party's nomination. But in order to take back the White House, Van Buren would first have to get the best of another Jackson protege, Tennessee's James K. Polk. In 1844, Polk and Van Buren would fight for control of the Democratic Party. The winner would face off against Whig candidate Henry Clay in a showdown over one of the most controversial political issues of the 1840s, westward expansion. At the center of that debate would be a newly formed republic that had won its independence from Mexico in 1836. Texas would define the election of 1844 and bring to the forefront of national politics another controversial issue that threatened to rip the country apart, slavery. This is episode 14 of American Elections Wicked Game, 1840, Old Tip. On the next episode, the election of 1844, in the wake of President Harrison's death, John Tyler fights to defend his right to the presidency. His independence costs him standing with his party and leaves the door open for another Whig to steal the nomination, Senator Henry Clay. In the 1844 contest, Clay stands toe-to-toe with a rising political star from Tennessee, James K. Polk. Tired of ads and promos like these? Want to skip ahead to newer elections? You can listen to all episodes of American Elections Wiki Game without interruption by subscribing at IntoHistory.com. But not only that, you also get access to over a dozen more incredible history podcasts, also all ad-free. That includes the American Revolution podcast, a deep and thorough investigation of the times, people, and politics behind America's fight for independence. Also, the battles, because we can't start a new American nation without guns. And the American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, from its origins in the French and Indian War, through the war itself, and on to the founding of the United States. Get American Elections Wicked Game, the American Revolution's podcast, and many others ad-free with bonus content at IntoHistory.com. Subscribe now at IntoHistory.com. This episode contains reenactments and dramatized details. And while in most cases we can't know exactly what was said, all our dramatizations are based on historical research. American Elections Wicked Game is an airship production. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Sound designed by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. Co-executive produced by Stephen Walters in association with Ritual Productions. Written and researched by Stephen Walters. Fact-checking by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar from the podcast History That Doesn't Suck.